back to the discourse. Today we are joined for a second time by executive editor of the American Prospect and author of new book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, uh, David Dayan. Uh, thanks for coming back for a second time, David. If you come back for a third time, you get a friend of the show status. All right. Which I'm legally required to tell you comes with a requirement to inform your neighbors. <laughs> uh, glad, glad you know, uh, for, well on my way to being a three-timer. So thank you. Yeah, you might be only our, I think, second or third one. I don't keep track of these sorts of things. You know, it's, it's what you call a bit. Anyway, no, but thank you for joining us, David. Over the weekend, you had a blog post out on your on the American Prospect under your unsanitized sort of daily updates, and it had to do with the four you know executive orders slash memos that Trump decided to uh, roll out during you know one of his I, I wanted to say bizarre uh, <laughs> bizarre press conferences, but they're all kind of like that. And if anything, this was a bit milder than I'm used to. Uh, so in but you know in between uh, a bit on on marriage and getting along with your partner uh, during the pandemic, and of course shower had pressure did he go into showerhead pressure at, the, I don't at that know one that one but there is there was a separate order which he's been talking about for years uh of the four i would say there's one that is in any way useful uh to the american people so that one would be the extension of student loan deferment uh through the end of the year uh, that doesn't mean that people don't owe money on the student loans eventually but they don't have to make any payments and there's no additional interest accrued from now until December. So that's helpful to people. Uh, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't cancel them, but it does show that uh, you, you can just defer those payments. And maybe uh, the Biden team can learn if they get into office that you could just sort of defer them indefinitely uh, and uh, there would be no uh, legal problem with that, and uh, you could sort of uh, cancel student debt by default. So that one is is helpful. Uh, the other three are are uniquely unhelpful. Um, so you have the the only one that was an executive order was on evictions and foreclosures. And contrary to popular belief, it was not a moratorium. It literally just said it directed the Housing and Urban, Urban Development Department and the Treasury Department to come up with something, and, and that, that's almost verbatim, <laughs> come up with something on, on evictions and uh, foreclosures to mitigate the damage. It did not uh, mandate any, any specific action, uh, but just said that, that, that some actions should be considered in the future. So that, that, is, that is vaporware. That, that is just worthless. Um, then we have the two economic-related actions. So the first is this deferral of the payroll tax. So everybody, uh, you know, they see FICA on their paycheck. Uh, that's, that's the payroll tax. And it's 6.2% of your income on the employee side and 6.2% on the employer side. What's not well known is that the CARES Act deferred the employer side. Um, uh, so, uh, so employers uh, who choose to do so haven't been paying the payroll tax. Uh, they, they, they can pay it later at a later date. Uh, this would defer the employee side, uh, the 6.2%, from now until about the end of the year. However, people would still owe that eventually. Uh, you, you would still have to pay that at some point. Uh, and you're talking about 16 weeks worth of, of payments times 6%. That's about one paycheck. So what would happen if your employer just gave that money back to you, you would get a 6% boost in salary effectively until the end of the year, and then you'd lose a paycheck in January. You would just not have that paycheck because it would be the back pay uh, for the payroll tax deferred. Well, no business is going to do that to their employees. Uh, they're, they're, they're not gonna put themselves in the position to say, we have to take your whole paycheck now. So what is far more likely to happen is that employers will just take that deferred uh, payroll tax money and just put it in an escrow account and then pay it when they have to pay it. And if, if it gets terminated, which is what Trump says he wants to do with that money, then they can give it back to, uh, uh, to employees. But the idea that this is gonna have any stimulative effect is negligible, it's none. There, there is going to be no effect from this. I guarantee you that that's what every business is going to do. Uh, so there's going to be no effect from that 
uh, in terms of boosting take-home pay. And also, you know, uh, people who are working are probably the least likely to be uh, in dire need of help right now relative to uh, people who are unemployed uh, or, or seniors or whatever. So, uh, so, so that is, is kind of a negligible thing as well. Um, finally, we have the unemployment insurance part of this. So uh, what they did was they said, we're going to take FEMA money, disaster relief money from the disaster relief fund, and uh, we're going to do uh, a $400 a week extension of unemployment insurance. Uh, however, under the laws of the disaster relief fund, there has to be a state match of that federal money. So they said, well, states, you do $100 of that and we'll do $300 of that. Well, the states immediately said, we have no money. There is no way for us to add $100 a week to all the unemployed paychecks right now. And uh, we, we just can't do it. So the, the administration backtracked and said, okay, you don't have to do a match, which is illegal, but I guess we're not in that world anymore. Um, uh, so really, we're talking about a $300 a week boost to, uh, to, to weekly unemployment checks. Now, uh, they only added $44 billion from the disaster relief fund for this purpose. And if you do the math on that, that might get you about five weeks more of unemployment insurance. In other words, the month of August, even though it's supposed to last until December. So really, on all four of these, what you really end up with in terms of, of something more than what we're ha we have right now is $300 a week for unemployment, uh, which is half of what people were getting from uh, March until, until August uh, uh, for about five weeks. Yeah, to me, it seems like this, the, this whole thing was just messaging so that he could say, the Democrats did nothing for you, look what I did. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I should say that the, the unemployment thing is even worse than that because these states have to, it's a new program, so they have to reprogram their janky uh, state unemployment computing systems, some of which run on COBOL. I was just about to say COBOL. Like from the 1950s. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, it's, it's very likely that it will take months for the states to get that up and running. And at that point, it'll, they'll do retroactive payments. It'll be just one payment, you know, one lump sum. Hey, here's, here's a thousand bucks, uh, 1500 bucks, something like that. And that'll be it. So, uh, really what, what you're getting now is pretty much what you're you know, the normal regular unemployment that each state gives, which is an average of about $300, $350 a week, that's pretty much what you're going to be getting. And then maybe down the road, if it's not fully exhausted, if your state is early enough to actually figure out how to, how to reprogram, uh, you'll get a little bit on the side. And that's it. I mean, I guess it goes without saying this is like cataclysmic, right? Obviously, you know, the amount of uh, material deprivation that people are facing under COVID-19 is like, I guess, unmatched in recent history, at least in the United States of America, right? And so, as John said, the danger is, I think, more so that the, that like, rather, the danger more so with these um, executive actions are that a they're illegal i suppose in some sort of esoteric way but we're right we're out of that world now so it doesn't really matter but that you know it allows trump to say that he has done something while the democrats are not doing something they want you know x y and z because like, during that particular press conference that was his excuse right in between his uh you know his various bits that was his excuse right that the democrats want um you know basically it's not it can't just be about covid19 release it has to be a wish list of other things so i guess that's my way of asking like well what are the democrats actually sort of proposing here like what like what reasonable comprehensive plan do they have that is simply being impeded by good yeah so um yeah first of all i agree with you i mean this is just so trump can say he did something it relieves the pressure on him to do anything else and come to the table for a negotiation and so this this is this is why talks are pretty much stalled or or not even on the on the radar as far as what the Democrats have, have supported, uh, Democrats passed a bill in May called the HEROES Act uh, out of the House of Representatives. 
It's about a $3.5 trillion bill, and it's essentially a, a fantasy wish list of, of virtually everything uh, that members saw as critical uh, in, this, in this moment, and some things that they didn't see, but they added in anyway. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit incoherent because it's like 50 different things in one bill. Uh, it would extend unemployment insurance by 600 a week uh, all the way to the end of the year. It would add about a trillion dollars of state and local government relief, which is desperately needed. Uh, we expect, if nothing is done, uh, to lose four million jobs uh, over the next year in, in state and local government and to have uh, that be a drag on GDP by about 3%. Uh, uh, you know, it included uh, money for the Postal Service. It included money for elections. It included a stronger and longer moratorium. It included money for small business, uh, it, and, and, and then it included weird stuff like uh, a repeal of the state and local tax deduction, which would benefit largely high-income individuals and couples in blue states, in, in states that have high tax rates. Well, I don't know why that is in there. It, it has uh, a thing that opens up the small business lending program to lobbying firms. So, uh, and, and predictably, these are the kinds of things that Trump throws out as they're, th they're trying to put in unrelated stuff into uh, this, this wish list bill. And indeed, they said, kind of right from the beginning, Democrats said, this is a messaging bill, which is hard to start a negotiation around if you're saying that, that this is not a serious effort. Uh, that looks at the crisis that we face and says these this is X Y and Z that we actually need to uh, to, to to move forward. Uh, if you're if you're saying it's a messaging bill, then why would the other side take you seriously in any real meaningful way? Um, so uh, you know this past uh, the problem I think all along was. Democrats thought they were going to get another chance at this, and they thought they had, and they had confidence about it. You know, I go back a lot to uh, an appearance that Nancy Pelosi gave on uh, CNN uh, with Jake Tapper, and Jake Tapper. Uh, this is in April, by the way, and he says state and local governments are crying for more relief. There's pretty much nothing in the CARES Act. Do you think you made a tactical error not putting that in the CARES Act? And her response was. Just calm down, was the first part of her response. We will have state and local government, yeah, we will have state and local government relief, and we will have it in a very significant way, and you can't argue about the past because what's done is done. And that's the fundamental problem here, that they, they believed that somehow they would get uh, another chance to pick up the pieces that they forgot or missed or, or weren't able to get in the CARES Act. And that was never going to happen. And so there was a complete lack of seriousness around this. And you end up with the HEROES Act, which is a wish list messaging bill. Uh, and, and, and by the way, even in these negotiations, they immediately went off that bill. They said, okay, how about, you know, we passed a $3.5 trillion bill, Senate Republicans proposed $1 trillion. how about we do two? So they already like lopped off a third of it, uh, and Democrat and Republicans said no, uh, and I'm sure they're prepared to concede plenty more uh, to to get themselves back to the table. But uh, so so that's that's really the problem. It's negotiating 101 is the problem. Let me look, look, David. I, I like having you on the show, right? I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to bury the lead here, because uh, you know this is a no BS zone, despite my initials, and you're a no BS person, and so I feel like we can have a legitimate conversation about the Democratic Party and like and what they're doing during COVID nineteen. When I think that you know more or less what you're getting from them is what you always get from them, that they're trying. Like they're trying and they're being, you know, obstructed by the Republicans in some sort of like historic way that they could not predict or otherwise uh, manage or can't manage or overcome, right? But I, I feel like we find ourselves in this position very often, right? And I think that, you know, I think that you're right, right? Like Nancy Pelosi's policy of basically, you know, we're here now. Don't look back. Don't think about how we got to this point. Don't think about how we got to the point where we can make a, I would say, semi-reasonable argument that we can't overcome Republican obstructionism because we don't, we just don't have like the practical seats to do it. You know, 
we can argue about that and how legitimate that is but like the the fact that they put themselves that they managed to get themselves into this strategic corner where they might not have anything they can do they might have anything they can leverage that you know people are dying in the streets and they just might be out of options is i think disqualifying it makes you it makes you wonder like how hard they are trying now kind of i think is debatable because like i said it's a wish list bill you know you put that out there for messaging and it seems as though both donald trump and the democratic party to me are trying to manufacture the narrative that the reason why people are not getting help is the other party not so much like actually trying to help people it's about who can more legitimately claim it's the other side obstructing right and i think that that particular dynamic and yeah uh, i mean that's that's an old Washington game, right? The, you know, you, when you can't you just pound the table, like blame the other side and, and finger point. And, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's, wash, that's politics. But my problem is you've completely underestimated the cruelty of the Republican Party. Like they just wanted the corporate bailout. Once they got that, they were done. And the corporate bailout is fairly permanent because it's $4.5 trillion that was in the, 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 the CARES Act to prop up asset prices. And by the way, this whole time, the stock market has been going up. So there, there is no kind of pressure on Republicans to, to, to do anything for their base because their base is already satiated. And, uh, you know, but the relief that you got for individuals and small businesses was temporary. Right. But you know, I think the point Brandon was trying to make is that, you know, if we continue, if they continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, at what point do you drop the idea that it's an underestimation and more along the lines of just a matter of they don't want to? Even if you do think it's more estimate underestimation, I would say like it's a pattern of behavior, a pattern of behavior of underestimating the, underestimating the Republicans' cruelness is still kind of like disqualifying because at a certain point, we know, I know what Republicans are about. <laughs> and so if the Democrats don't, and they're like, you know, the closest to them, then that speaks to me as like a Oh, it problem. is. It is. You're you're absolutely right about that. And and you know, no one has been more critical in this process of the Democrats than me. And and I don't have a problem with you saying this is a pattern of behavior, or maybe they don't uh, really really want to help people. Uh, I I think that's politically uh, ridiculous and stupid because why are you in politics to begin with? But, uh, you know, I have no problem with with uh, with making that argument. Uh, I, I what I have tried to do is just lay this out, just lay this out so that lessons can be drawn, even though if, even if they are not being drawn by the uh, uh, leadership in power right now, maybe someone uh, who's who's uh, emerging to get into power can figure it out. Oh, no, I agree with you. And I think that it's important. Just I think that it's a worthwhile goal to just put the information in the hands of the people who will benefit from it. And I guess going back to a point that you made a little bit earlier about like maybe the Democratic Party, you know, perfect world scenario can learn something from like Trump being able to defer, um, you know, student loan payments and basically on a whim that they might do that, too. I mean, I would look to the executive orders, despite their illegality, if that thing, if that doesn't matter anymore, as a model for what the Democratic Party might have to condition themselves to be prepared to do if Republican obstructionism continues into the Biden presidency, right? Because like they're not going to suddenly stop being obstructionist, especially once they're not, you know, they can more easily paint it as the Democrats fault. So like, you know, if they're not going to be willing to engage in this level of like, you know, I don't think behavior tit for tat, then we're going to find ourselves just continuing on this sort of downward spiral. I think I thought, so I guess my question more about like, you know, if they're learning, if they're trying, it comes more towards this is actually going to become, uh, you know, while it's camp they're campaigning and they technically don't have a president in power, you can make the semi reasonable argument that sure they can't do anything. But what does that actually look like when there is a Biden presidency? What does it look like when you know day you know January twenty third Biden is the president in his first hundred days? Like he like coronavirus is still ravaging the country. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're speaking my language. We we put out last fall an entire issue called the Day One Agenda, which listed dozens of executive actions based on statutes already passed by Congress that uh, the next president can take on his own authority uh, to uh, benefit the American people. And in fact, we went even further just a week or so ago 
uh, Max Moran, who's a writer for us, he uh, took a look at the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force document. Uh, and he looked at it to see which one of these policies could be done by executive action. That's a long document. It's like 100 plus pages. He found 277 different executive actions that could be taken uh, under shit. the authority of the president without needing Congress, without needing Mitch McConnell. And uh, we put that up in a spreadsheet on the website. Yeah, we put that up in a spreadsheet on the website. So, you know, the, the goal there, uh, the goal with the day one agenda and the goal with, with that, uh, that uh, piece was to say, we know what you can do. Like, we have a list right here of the things you can do, of the actions you can take to benefit the American people. And if you don't do them, then we've proven your point that you just don't want to, right? Uh, if, if, you, if you do take us up on this offer and you do uh, execute these actions, which are perfectly legal and constitutional, uh, then uh, you're just following the, 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 you know, the, the basic definition of the president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. But if you don't, then we, we know who you are all along. So the point is to get this information out so we actually have a, a benchmark and a yardstick to judge uh, the next president. We're going to link that article in the description so people can see what, you know, what is theoretically possible, right? Because I think you're right. You know, we find ourselves even in at this moment, like talking about what is being done or not done through this veil of like, you know, practicality. The, the Republicans are obstructionists. The, you know, the Republicans are not allowing us. It's illegal, et cetera, et cetera. Like a, a lot of, you know arguments that range from just entirely illegitimate to like you know seemingly reasonable right and so like actually showing i think people that a lot of the boundaries on what is possible in america for you know at least in regard of covid relief and beyond that you know a lot of these boundaries that are being portrayed as practical or pragmatic or just like legitimate are mostly just ideological and, ar and arbitrary and we don't need to have them and we can like you know sort of map that out um but i think john wanted to get in here for a second yeah, well, I was actually going to speak to that because one of the things I read in your Ansanitize report for today was about the municipality lending program. And you said that a, a uh, Indiana University, David Gamage and Shansky lay out a way, uh, lay out how there's a way to avoid treasury effect veto on the program by lending under the Fed Section 14 rather than Section 13 authority to give municipalities the desperately needed cash that they, they deserve and need right now because uh, as of right now, it's only the lending program under the Fed for that type of bond buying market has only happened once, and it's for Indiana, the state of Indiana, and it was like $1.2 billion, whereas the Fed has bought over 800 companies' corporate bonds, right? So Illinois, sorry. You, you see the bias of the Fed there, right? That, that they, uh, when it comes to corporate bonds, they say, well, we have to keep our promise. We promise to buy a bunch of corporate bonds. So, you know, even if the corporate bond market is doing well, and even if these guys aren't, aren't asking for it, we got to buy them up to lower rates. We, it's just where our hands are tied, our credibility is on the line. And then when it comes to municipal lending, uh, they say, well, you know, nobody wants it. You know, what are we going to do? No, nobody's asking us to buy their, their, their muni bonds. Um, the truth is that uh, cities and states are absolutely strapped. As I mentioned, uh, you could be looking at 4 million jobs lost, a, a reduction of GDP of, of 3%. And they don't really need loans. They need money. They need, they need grants. And uh, the question is, if Congress isn't willing to do that, how do you do that? Because the Fed is essentially interested in liquidity. They're interested in, in giving loans. They might have good terms, but uh, what do you do? So what, um, you know, right now the Fed is lending under this Section 13 authority, which is in cooperation with Treasury. Uh, and Treasury seems unlikely to make the terms very favorable to uh, municipalities. Obviously, you know, that's Steve Mnuchin, a, a Trump loyalist, and, and uh, Trump thinks this is a bailout for blue states. So he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to make this attractive to a lot of states. In fact, but under the current under the current municipal liquidity program, 97% uh, of the cities and states eligible would have no reason to do it because it's actually would cost them more than what the market bears right now for for municipal bonds. So how do you fix that? Well, there's a Section 14 authority for lending, which is 
doesn't rely on treasury, but it's only six months at a time. It, it's like short-term loans. So what you can do is Fed, the Fed can say, we're going to roll over these loans uh, every six months, uh, and we can do it for 20 years. We can do it for 30 years. We can do it for 50 years. We can do it for 100 years. And uh, every time you extend that, you make it more like a grant and less like a loan. And we're in a moment where if cities and states don't get some, some, some money to, to, to cover these revenue shortfalls, uh, we're going to see absolute carnage in the job market. And so the Fed has that power. The Fed can really do what it wants here. And they're just choosing not to use it. They've chosen to, uh, to do that with respect to, uh, with respect to, to corporations. They've chosen to intervene in those markets. With respect to cities and states, they have chosen not to. And there is another path, and they should take it. You know, a lot of the problems that we're dealing with, I think, under COVID-19 are being laid entirely at the feet of, you know, the Trump administration, right? For better or worse, Trump has been made to be responsible for the 100,000 plus, you know, anywhere between 100,000 and over 200,000 deaths that could be correlated with, uh, you know, COVID-19, if not directly considered causative. Uh, but there does seem to be a lack both on terms of COVID-19 and just like with the various other social issues we're dealing with, right? I'm thinking of the BLM uprisings and like their response to defund the police. There seems to just be a lack of understanding that a lot of these problems are existing at the state and local level. A lot of this is just like infrastructure that has been de-invested in and de defunded to make, you know, weaker to justify privatization. Uh, like that weakness being now being weaponized against people in a more insidious way, right? I mean, at least in terms of the I'm thinking entirely of the post office now going off on a tangent. But, you know, generally speaking, a lot of people are now just being made aware of how many whole gaps in the how many gaps in the foundation of our society, of our cities and our government, you know, our government there are. And it's just unfortunate that that, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate that that is being entirely made about Trump and not about the various like uh, safeguards and actors who had to fail before it even got to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. COVID has been just this giant spotlight on uh, our, our system of, of government, our underlying infrastructure, our virtually everything, and how inadequate it is for the broad mass of people. And uh, we, you know, it's, it's, it's vital that we do something about that. Uh, you know, um, even so much as Joe Biden has talked about this and said that, that what you know, we're, we're seeing a spotlight shown on, on uh, the inequities in our system, uh, and, and that has to be remedied. Now, how he's going to remedy it is probably very different from how I uh, would choose to remedy it. Uh, but I think there's a moment here uh, to, to, to understand that. I mean, we also had a similar moment in, in the 1930s when uh, the, the safety net was virtually non-existent, particularly for seniors. Uh, and the depression was this debilitating event and Franklin Roosevelt, you know, in 1932 ran on deficit reduction, uh, and comes into office and realizes the enormity of this problem and immediately gets to work in experimenting with, uh, things that can be done. And we end up with the new deal. Now I'm not calling Biden, uh, FDR by any stretch of the imagination, but I am saying the moment is similar and a similar uh, uh, movement in place can push uh, politicians who are not inclined to uh, engage in such interventionist actions uh, uh, economically to do so. Uh, one, one story I bring out uh, is, um, so Glass-Steagall, right? And that was done in 1935, or 33, I should say. And uh, it... Uh, separated commercial and investment banks. It's seen as one of the great progressive reforms of the financial system. Well, who is Glass? Uh, Glass is Carter Glass. He was the uh, chair of the Senate Banking Committee at the time. He was a Democrat from, from Virginia. But he was a Southern Democrat, a uh, conservative Southern Democrat, and he was a complete stooge for the banking industry, like a total stooge for the banking industry. He did whatever they wanted. 
So why is Carter Glass's name on Glass-Steagall? Well, the public at large was so incensed with banks in the aftermath of the Great Depression and the Pecora hearings, which were these great hearings that were on that that were uh, that showed the the rot within the banking system, the mass speculation with depositor funds and and, and things of that nature. People were so incensed that they they wanted the complete nationalization of banking entirely. I mean, they 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 the, the there was a, a resolution in the state of West Virginia that any bank that failed, the CEO should be beheaded. And this was in the 19, early 1930s. Um, and, you know, what what became Glass-Steagall was the compromise that that was, you know, Carter Glass talking to the banks and saying, look, if you don't want to be eliminated as an industry altogether, what you're going to have to do is do this structural separation. We can try to sell this. And that's what gets through. And it ends up being this very robust, progressive reform by someone who had no instincts uh, to, to deliver anything of that nature. So what I'm saying is that uh, uh, you know, desperate times can change people and it can change their opinions and it can force them to act because of a grassroots movement uh, that, that pressures the political system. I think that that's the more reasonable interpretation of what might like what the Biden administration, besides like the weird parts about it, uh, would look like. Right. It would look like I mean, especially in the time of COVID-19, it would look like the administration trying to figure out what they could do to keep the lights on. Right. To keep people from literally taking to the streets. Now, I mean, of course, there is the, you know, the conversation about like that just being the bare minimum to keep people out of the streets and all oh, like the people who are going to be left behind by what they do. And honestly, there is just a chance that like it might be too late in some senses that we never know right it might or they might if not if not be too late it might just they might undershoot it right they might been trying to over tinker with it undershoot whatever solution they have or whatever and it just doesn't work but that we have to get to that point first and in speaking of getting to the point where joe biden is president not to make a hard pivot you know Today, we had Trump more or less come out and affirm what people had suspected about, you know, the constant attacks on the post office, that it was just another way for a much more transparent way for him to attempt to influence the election uh, illegitimately, essentially. Uh, and, you know, we've been covering the post office for a while here and you know not to spring it i hope it's not a gotcha question but we you know we know you've also been covering the post office I, I wonder if you have any take on you know the the latest developments there as well yeah i mean trump is 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 not a very savvy guy right i mean he'll, he'll pretty much tell you what he's thinking uh and uh he he just came out and said it that, that he is uh, uh deliberately uh, trying to defund and uh, also slow down the Postal Service in order to stop a uh, large amount of mail-in ballots from uh, being distributed uh, for the presidential election in, in the belief, which you know may be a misguided belief, that uh, vote-by-mail hurts Republicans. I mean, uh, historically, it hasn't. It, it's actually been good for Republicans. And that's why last week he had to kind of change his tune and say, Oh, for Florida, it's okay. Absentee ballots are good in Florida, but not elsewhere, uh, because he knew that uh, uh, you know that it helps Republicans to have an absentee ballot program in 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 Florida and actually in most states. So um, uh, I I think this might end up hurting Trump more than it helps, but it's very transparent. I mean, it, you know, we know exactly what he's trying to do. He installed a guy who is a large donor to him, who is a loyalist, who was the, uh, I guess his wife is the U.S. ambassador to Canada, uh, or, or the nominee to be the ambassador to Canada. He uh, has holdings in competitors to, in millions of dollars in holdings, uh, to, in competitors to the U.S. Postal Service. And this is the guy he makes Postmaster General. Well, big surprise, then he ends up uh, uh, you know, engaging in actions that slow down the mail, cutting overtime, telling postal workers to leave mail behind, uh, just vanishing sorting uh, machines that are used to sort mail, just taking them out. Um, it, 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 there's nothing. There's nothing real canny about this. There's nothing secretive or hidden about this. Uh, the post office has been sending emails or uh, letters to secretaries of state saying. 
you know, if you use the old 20 cent uh, uh, marketing mail for to mail your ballots out to everybody, they really might not get there on time. You better use that first class mail, 55 cents, which is triple the cost uh, for states and counties at a time when they don't have a lot of money. Uh, uh, you know, they're they're not hiding it. They're, there's nothing being hidden here. This is a deliberate a attack on commerce and an attempted theft of the election. Maybe it's just me, but even like look, thinking back to like the time in which Americans were being taken off the streets by like unidentified people in camo, there was an undercurrent, I think, of people who were just like, yes, but if someone with authority comes and does something like that to you, you should just go with them and wait until you have the chance to like exercise your rights through the proper channels. And like, I think that's actually an undercurrent of thought that is pervasive and people are, you know, like, but what happens when those levers might be taken away is, is a very serious question. And while this might not be the the time where it's as meaningful, we know in the past it's it's happened, right? That's what happened in Florida in 2000. And it kind of just went away. The good news with your analogy is that thousands of people in Portland didn't uh, take that as, oh, well, you know, they must have done something wrong or, or whatever. And they got out on the streets uh, and they they eventually caused the situation where it was blown up in the media and then these these troops vacated the city. Uh, what is the version of that for the Postal Service? So uh, I don't know uh, uh, necessarily, but I will take a shot at this. You know, uh, the Postal Service is is not just, uh, you know, something that that helps with elections and, and, and gets you your junk mail. Uh, it's really a, a, a core of, of the health system that we have in the United States. Uh, a substantial amount of postal mail is pharmaceuticals, uh, mail-in pharmacies, uh, particularly in rural areas where uh, there aren't a lot of, of spokes of the health system. Uh, you almost have the Postal Service as, as one of the key distributors of, of health care in the United States. And... Uh, this is life or death, uh, particularly for areas that are typically represented by Republicans. And so the question is, at what point does this uh, deliberate sabotage of this essential infrastructure, the post office, uh, become a problem uh, in these red areas? Uh, and, and particularly a, a life and death problem in these ways. Wasn't that Jared Kushner's response to COVID? I mean, until it was hitting red areas, he just ignored it. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe this is a situation where you find uh, uh, Republicans, uh, uh, you know, who, who are saying, hey, you're, you're, you're hurting my own people here. I mean, that was kind of my modest proposal that I wrote this week about how do you get leverage back into these negotiations? Well, if, uh, you know, one of the asks that uh, Mitch McConnell had was he wanted this total immunity for corporations uh, if they uh, infected uh, workers or customers uh, at various workplaces. Uh, so, you know, th the problem is there are no actual lawsuits that are taking place right now. It was just a phantom idea. Uh, so my modest proposal was, well, why doesn't every lawyer in America start suing corporations? so that corporations will then run to Republicans and say, we really have to get this immunity. You have to go to the table and give the Democrats whatever they want. Uh, that is, that, that's how you create a situation where each side has a vested interest. And right now, it's, it's only the Democrats that have a vested interest. You know what would help with that? Unions. Uh, organized labor. Uh, well, you have that. that. I mean, again, that's one of those things where it's like, I mean, you have that in the in the postal service. Uh, most of the postal service is unionized, and and you might have to see some wildcat labor actions uh, uh, in 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 this situation. Uh, I wouldn't put it past the postal service. They did that in 1970. It was an illegal strike, but it led to a lot of change at the postal service, and and maybe that's something that needs to be explored again. Absolutely. I mean, the postal the postal service is one of the last bastions of like big bastions of unionization. Those them and teachers, mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of why people, like, which is kind of why they've been under assault for the past few decades. But yeah. Well, and it's also uh, one of the there. very few ladders to the middle class 
for African Americans and Latinos. So if you're really wondering why Donald Trump doesn't like the Postal Service, uh, there's your answer. I got to be honest with you. I don't think Donald Trump knows that. I think that there are definitely people around him who know that, who are trying to like take down the postal service. I don't think that Donald Trump, I don't think that well, Donald Trump personally knows that. I'm sure if you told him that, he would be like, oh yeah, let's break up the post office. But like later, he wouldn't remember that. What one. he does, <laughs> that, what he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. What I think that. he does know is that uh, he has pretty uh, rich and powerful uh, uh, special interests representing FedEx. And UPS, whose goal for decades has been to privatize the Postal Service, get rid of the Postal Service, and uh, let them take over the uh, distribution of mail. And, uh, you know, everything that's been done for the last couple decades has moved in that direction. And, and, you know, if you undermine the confidence and trust that people have in the Postal Service, you get us closer down the road to that privatization. I mean, the Postal Service has these incredible trust ratings, uh, 91% approval among the entire country. But, you know, if all of a sudden what took two days before now takes 12 days to get to your mailbox and or you're a small business and you rely on shipping from the Postal Service and, and nobody's getting your packages and you might not be super political and you don't know exactly what how this is tied up with the election, you're going to be pissed off and you're going to lose trust in the Postal Service. And that is when uh, the forces of privatization can strike. You mentioned the potential for dramatic change in the moment as a result of the emergency relief uh, to COVID. And I'm reminded that the first bite of the apple, the very first bite was a negotiation between like two to ten trillion dollars of emergency relief, or excuse me, two to ten billion dollars of emergency relief, and I think the first bill settled around eight billion dollars, so woefully inadequate. And so that they got another bite of the apple was, I guess, a happy or unfortunate accident of the crisis being far worse than they were willing to admit at that time. Uh, but I think that the uh, giving in to the corporate bailout was very critical as, as far as we mentioned as maintaining leverage and that the the original CARES Act basically with the trillions of dollars in lending and open uh, from the Fed uh, made it to where they didn't have to come back in order to uh, get any more anything more because as you said they were satiated and I think one of the aspects that was important was I think Democrats like they did when yeah, when Democrats uh, kind of uh, celebrated the Republicans trying to eliminate Obamacare, this reminded me of that, and that they, so I, I see it as that they could have known that they weren't going to get that second bite, and they were pr- planning on there being electoral consequences, or, you know, essentially doing the table smashing and, and trying to get some sort of electoral advantage out of it, and I think they've said as much, and with the the connotation of messaging bill for the new bill, I think that further reinforces the idea that they essentially wanted to just turn the election into, we want to do these things for you, but Republicans are stopping us. And I think the executive order thing that you mentioned is very important in that. And so that it kind of gives them a day one thing that puts, gives them the opportunity to put their money where their mouth is. I'm wondering whether the campaign has already accepted and like taken a look at that and said, yeah, that's what we'll do day one. Uh, and if there's any reason not to. And I guess one of the other questions that I had for you was you mentioned the trillion dollars in the biggest uh, package that's for the states from the Democrats. Would that be adequate, given the circumstances that you mentioned, uh, to even cover what we know is already uh, in dire straits as it is as, at the state level, not even counting the, uh, the Postal Service aspect that you mentioned for ramping up for an election? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. Um, uh, the, yeah, a trillion dollars is about what uh, the uh, various uh, analysts think is uh, sufficient to cover uh, all these revenue shortfalls. I will say that that doesn't include money for schools who have a, a lot of additional costs because of COVID-19 and the need for social distancing. I mean, every time you uh, reduce class size, you got to have another teacher, right? Uh, and so, um, and, and there are just a host of different, uh, uh, different costs that go into that. And that's probably another 100 to 200 billion 
Uh, I talked to Randy Weingarten from the uh, American Federation of Teachers about that. There was a uh, uh, an unsanitized about that a couple of weeks ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a reasonable uh, uh, request. And and right, what was in the CARES Act was 150 billion dollars for state and local governments, but it was only for costs incurred by the coronavirus. So testing or uh, additional social distancing measures at, at city and state offices or whatever, plexiglass or what, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, PPE. Um, so you couldn't use it to cover your, your shortfall in your budget. It's all, it was all for extra costs. And so that does no good in terms of the revenue shortfall. And, and that's why we have this huge hole that they're trying to fill uh, with close to a trillion dollars. So uh, I, I think that is reasonable. Uh, as to your question uh, as how this has become just sort of a political football, uh, I mean, you know, that's what Republicans did. Uh, in the Great Recession uh, in 2009, they made the decision that to obstruct every effort to uh, uh, use stimulus to revitalize the economy, uh, and it worked pretty well for them. Uh, they, they ended up uh, winning the House, uh, and uh, the obstructionism was, was broadly successful. So uh, to the extent that Democrats learned something from that, uh, that might be okay on a political level, but it's horrific on a human level, on an interpersonal level, um, to, to allow uh, this, this, this carnage to take place. I mean, you know, if it was a situation where uh, in exchange for the corporate bailout, they got these various measures, stimulus checks, uh, uh, unemployment, evictions, foreclosure, moratoria, uh, all of these things for the duration of the pandemic. Then you would have at least some more balance in that in that exchange. The, the problem is that they only got it. And strategically, it would or. I was just going to say, strategically, it would be advantageous in that it would put the taking those benefits and the relief away would fall on the next electoral or the next election, the next president. And so presumably, if it's a Biden, uh, you can at minimum prevent him from just uh, going full austerity because people have become accustomed to this relief. And on uh, an optimistic side, you would be able to try and get him to enact some sort of permanence to the ones that make sense. Like, for instance, an executive order to make sure that uh, college debt isn't going to be a problem for people, at least during his administration. But I think it does also kind of fall prey to one of the concerns that we've raised on the show before about the tenuousness of policy that uh, people depend on that if a Republican president comes in after him, they can undo those types of executive orders. If they're not, then it made permanent through legislation. So I think that's definitely an important aspect. I guess one of the other things that came to my mind quickly was just how it seems in many ways that uh, the Trump administration is using the state and local and educational shortfalls as leverage to push schools into opening uh, and then presuming they meet his uh, expectations in the opening so that the economy can begin opening, then he'll allow some of that aid to come uh, to end up through the states and Republicans are in a jam. McConnell's in a jam because he can't sign off on a hundred billion dollars to California just because Kentucky needs 10 billion or whatever. Right. Um, you know, the first on, on your first point, uh, the other thing that this all would have done is if you said that this money is available for the duration of the pandemic, it would have actually got the, the government to think about stopping the damn pandemic which is the thing that we need to do in order for the economy to come back. It's impossible to uh, uh, envision a situation where the economy roars back to life when we're still in, in the midst of having 1,500 people die every day uh, and, and, and tens of thousands, uh, 50,000 infections. That's never going to happen. And so if you said it was for the duration, you actually would have pumped money into you know, uh, testing and into test and trace systems, which could be a, an excellent way for to get people who are unemployed into the jobs uh, uh, market again. Uh, you would have, uh, you know, actually uh, put some money into fighting the virus. Uh, people have looked at the CARES Act and its subsequent measures and found that uh, something like seven or eight percent of all the money actually goes to fighting the virus. Uh, 
even though these are supposed to be coronavirus pills, uh, all of it is just sort of, you know, throwing this, this money at the economic problem without stopping the virus, making it more costly down the road. Um, so I, I think that would have been very important. And then uh, the, the, the thing that you're talking about is also critical. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the reason that 600 a week, uh, uh, the reason that it sounds uh, uh, absurd, like people are making more money on unemployment than they made at their jobs. The problem there is not unemployment. The problem is their jobs. The problem is the jobs don't pay enough money. And so to the extent that you can have uh, a, a system to give some bargaining power to people uh, uh, it, when they rotate back into the job market, that would have been very helpful. Um, as far as leverage for the schools, um, yes, I mean, absolutely, Trump was trying to uh, uh, condition the funds that he would give the schools on their reopening. Uh, and, you know, that ends up being more costly. When I talked to Randy Weingarten, she said, look, if you really want to reopen all the schools and do it in a reasonably safe way, you'd have to have 47% more teachers and 47% more space. Uh, and that ends up being about three to four times as much money as uh, the $200 billion it would take to do it in a hybrid model or in a work from home model or in, in some other model that is, uh, that is, that is effective. So, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's, that's kind of what I have to say on the school's front. I mean, I, just to your first point, not the school's front, but to the sort of like making the effects of making the uh, pandemic measures uh, to alleviate people's, you know, workers as opposed to just like corporations' uh, issues on, uh, on their pandemic. Like, I mean, yeah, but I think since the beginning, we've, at least on this show, we've seen like what's been going on as kind of just both parties trying to maintain a balancing act in like, you know, providing enough to make sure that people are like not literally in the streets rioting, like we talked about a little bit before, but like, like making sure that it's sort of impossible to for people to get too comfortable or too used to the idea that I mean just that working shouldn't be attached to something as simple as health insurance right because I mean if you would think about just logic I mean I feel like if you just think about it logically the middle of a pandemic is right the time you know if you believe the Democrats for their word which is that they want to do universal health care that they want to do Medicare for all right now is the time that they should be pumping it as hard as they can but we right we know that they're not they, they just point blank aren't like the human cost of that is, you know, not is not negligible, but it's a separate issue from the fact that it, at least from my perspective, again, I think that Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton was was more than preventable. But it just like just simply it was like he just like managed to sneak one past the goal considering with a lot of help from, uh, you know, incompetence. But I think that they've managed and, you know, at least in the eyes of a few people, at least in the eyes of like their most, uh, I don't know, um, what I'm looking for. Yeah, hardened base to, to like sort of make make Trump into this insurmountable threat that I don't think he is. And just from a practical standpoint, I would think a political party right now, like for again, for better or worse, Trump is being forced to share the vast majority of the blame in at least a good portion of people's minds for what's going under COVID-19, right or wrong. I would imagine just a political party would be using that just that picture to take as much power for themselves as they could grab using whatever means they could possibly means that whatever means they could possibly sort of like uh you know employ but it kind of seems like they've just put the biden campaign on autopilot they added kamala harris if you're into that you know whatever <laughs> but you know the election goes the way the election goes and i think just from like I mean, like, yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like if you're in, like, and it just feels like they think if the election goes the way they want it to go because, like, uh, Donald Trump keeps messing it up, that's great. You know, that's what it looks like it's going to do, but they're not going to, you know, try too hard for that. And I just, you know, again, just from a particularly, like, ide you know, ideology aside, it's just, it's, it's just weird to see a party so disinterested in securing power for themselves and you have to just wonder i think that like it's because with power comes responsibility not to quote spider-man like the more power they have the more people are going to question like why things aren't getting done but it's just like I, it's just i just feel like right now is the perfect time if the democratic party wanted to be like to put a deal a serious blow to the republican party they would make the republicans generally wear trump around their necks and they would use him to, to sink whoever they could right and like you said in order to get support for whatever they want to get through they would take it they should take it to each individual republican who whose seat is on the line in a rural area who might be negatively affected by COVID 19 or by the lack of usps but again like they just like 
whatever you know <laughs> like it's just like a, it's like a, who cares moment like oh like oh, okay like you don't even care about defeating these people like even though like they're supposed to be some sort of existential threat like they're more interested i think in manufacturing this like crossover marvel event to defeat donald trump presidency at the dnc then i'm like but you could just like wipe them out right you could wipe out the republicans like you could just make them you could make them you could do what to them what they did to you in 2010 essentially right and, it, and it, it's more telling because we're right in the moment of an economic and a viral crisis that was similar to what caused FDR to bring about the New Deal, which put them in power for 50, 60 years. And like, as we said yesterday, they're not even running on a marijuana legalization, which would be an unbelievably popular platform position. So what are they doing? Yeah, that's a weird one with where Biden is really on the other side of pretty much the whole party on that, including Harris. And uh, that'll be an interesting thing to see. We're actually going to do a little reporting on that, uh, particularly marijuana issue. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, generally what I would say is that uh, I, I think the strategy that you've seen with regard to coronavirus relief sort of reflects a larger problem with the Democratic Party. And that is this, you know, what my uh, uh, friend Matt Stoller often says is a fear of governing, uh, that they, they are, they're kind of afraid to take power. They'd rather uh, market forces uh, determine uh, the, the best course of action. And uh, they, they, they'd, they'd rather uh, a Republican daddy uh, figure this out for them or that the courts uh, that, that uh, you know, uh, RBG slays queen, uh, and, and figures this all out for him. The filibuster in that sense is sort of a tool, right? To blunt accountability. If you, as long as you have the filibuster, you can still finger point at the Republicans. They're blocking this relief. Uh, well, why don't you take the filibuster away? Well, you know, then you'd be responsible. Then, then you, you would have to actually own up to the, uh, policies and, and possibilities that you put forward. And I think there are you know, certainly some people uh, within the Democratic Party, some some politicians who want to do that, but uh, it's certainly not a universal sense. Um, I think the Democrats are going to do uh, extremely well in, in the election. I think uh, the idea that Donald Trump is going to be in any way uh, sidelined or a second billing in this election is, is, is not credible. Uh, it, it's all going to be a referendum on Trump. And, uh, you know, there are going to be a death toll over 200,000 at that point. And, and, you know, I think that, that that's, uh, that's going to speak for itself. So I, I, I think Democrats will do quite well to the extent the election isn't stolen. Uh, but the question is, what are they going to do after? What are they going to do with this power? Is it just uh, aggrandizing power for power's sake? Uh, and so you can get a better office in Washington and maybe go to better restaurants. Or uh, is it uh, something where you actually have this moment and opportunity to deliver for the public in a way that will only benefit you from a power standpoint down the road? I mean, we, we do have a, a, a story coming uh, probably in a couple months about, you know, how do you turn non-voters into voters? And, and the answer is you give them something, like something tangible. Uh, I remember Rick Perlstein, who just his book about uh, the Reagan years uh, called Reaganland uh, is out, I believe, next week. And we're going to be talking to him. Um, he, he once told me that uh, the Democrats in the 30s, this populist Southern Democrat, he, he used to go around with a slogan called Democrats, freedom plus groceries. Like they gave you something tangible. They gave, they gave you something real uh, and said, this is what we've done for you. Now vote for us. And uh, uh, modern day Democrats seem to be uh, running more on, this is what they'll take away from you. The Republicans point to them, vote for us. I guess I, my, my concern is, is whether it's fair to say that the, based off of what we see now, whether there's, it's reasonable to expect them to pursue that course in any other way than I think the way that you described before, where there is a massive grassroots movement where it's essentially enact these policies that you told us that you wanted to do. Otherwise, the whole thing's getting burned down. Like that seems to be 
it doesn't seem like it seems like even if like well, I mean I think go in ahead. this case Sorry. I mean I'm actually maybe before COVID nineteen got as bad as it didn't it's continuing to get bad and I think the CDC just said that if we don't follow guidelines it's going to be the worst fall in recent memory which basically means it's going to be the worst fall in recent memories because we're not going to follow the guidelines I mean I'm not as concerned as I used to be about people like going back to brunch because functionally you can't. Right. You just can't go back to brunch, at least and not be reminded of like the failures of the American uh, infrastructure or the, fa- the failure of American institutions to keep people safe. Right. You can only play this game where like the servers have to wear masks and like you feel comfortable like going drink. It's only fun for so long before they, OK, well, this is weird and, you know, things need to happen. Right. So I think more so is my like. It's just like, I think more so the danger would be, you know, just like you, you have this population of people, of Democrats, of a lot, Americans generally, who are going to be facing serious maldistribution of resources, like being unable, being evicted, being like unable to feed their kids, like medicine, just like things that are already happening right now. And like some of these people right now actually think that Joe Biden, just by getting into office, is going to make things better. Right. And like I think in the past with people like. Uh, we know. I think in the past with like candidates like Obama, there's been the ability to maintain this veil for everyone who essentially matters, right? You know, the people who matter can be you know made comfortable. Everyone else can be made to feel as though they just didn't work hard enough. But I think that we're going to talk, be talking about a lot of just civil unrest from a portion of the population who we just haven't seen activated before, right? So like, there's the bigger danger I think is like them being led astray down the wrong path, much less so like you know people not necessarily people going back to brunch. I think if that makes sense, so, like yeah. My concern is that, like, you know, once you have, like, people who are fi- who finally can't take enough, they don't really have a guideline or a framework or a rubric for what to do with that anger or what levers to pull. And so I think more it's about, like, okay, like, the left has to be there, right? Once it becomes, like, once, I mean, not once, but if the Joe Biden administration, if they manage to fail to actively satisfy enough of the government's, I mean, enough people's needs just by nature of, like, being hamstrung by ideology, like, the left has to be there to actually lead people down the right direction because the only other option is that they go towards like the far right again right because i mean i think that's the danger and it's just not been articulated in you know the biden administration if he fails to actively do what he needs to do to alleviate the like what's going on with covid regardless of why that is whether it's the republican obstructionism you know whether it's like you know the great kazoo coming back from the the future to like do magic to mess with him doesn't matter if people are continue to suffer at this level or more under the biden administration we're going to get somebody worse in 2024 Right. And that and that's like easily or 2028. Right. It doesn't matter. Like and that's like and that's just the, the cycle we've been in. And so I think it's really important to a foreground that we know that if they don't do something that will happen. So they can't pretend like it's a, oh, it's a surprise. <laughs> like, oh, who knew? But also like to actually have like, you know alternatives so people know like so people know what to demand right so like we don't end up in a situation like we ended up in with the first when you know or rather what we could have ended up in and it seemed like we might end up in when the blm uprisings first started where you just had people for various reasons trying to turn all that energy into a vote for joe biden campaign right but i think you know considering how serious things are going to go with COVID 19 especially from the beginning of his campaign they're going to have a hard time turning that you know the you know covid energy the covid anxiety the covid uprising that is probably going to come into another like electoral campaign or infrastructural or institutional sort of you know just wait till you can the midterms it's not gonna be able to do that i think is my point so it's just more about like having places for people to go 